invite you to turn in your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as we once again want to take up the topic which we have focused on now for a number of weeks, the topic of putting our sin to death by the spirit of duty that's pressed upon us very clearly here in Romans 8 and verse 13. We'll read together verses 12 and 13. Romans 8. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So reads the infallible word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for His help as we consider these words together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the Word of God that You have given to us. Uh, that you have given us understanding in it to some degree, and we are grateful. We pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would come and take the Word of God, take and seal it to our hearts, help us to receive and understand it, that we might be able to apply it to our own lives, our own hearts. Please come in grace and in power and bless your Word, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name for His glory. Amen. Just let me remind you of two or three things about the mortification of sin or the duty of putting to death the deeds of the body, as Paul calls it here, before we move on to new material this morning. Uh, First of all, that the putting to death the deeds of the flesh is a spiritual duty that's incumbent upon every single Christian. Uh, Paul makes it very clear here that this is not something that's optional. Uh, It's a life or death issue. It must be engaged in. I must be engaged in putting my remaining sin to death if I would see life. And we noted that that's eternal life. As John Owen said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is a spiritual activity. We put sin to death by the Spirit of God, by the help and grace of the Holy Spirit who indwells every redeemed, regenerated Christian. We must never get the idea that uh, putting sin to death uh, is just a a mechanical exercise or the same thing as what happens when an an alcoholic goes to an AA AA program and he comes out sober. Uh, And that may be a a wonderful thing. Uh, We don't put that down. Humanly speaking, that's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing of common grace when that happens. But that's not the same thing as putting sin to death by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a spiritual activity that only true Christians are able to accomplish because of their union with Christ and His death, His resurrection, and because only Christians, true Christians possess the Holy Spirit of God who strengthens us with might in the inner man to be able to put sin to death. And so far we've considered six pastoral counsels or disciplines that we must engage in if we are going to have any hope uh, of success in this, uh, this duty. First of all, we must maintain a strong conviction of the evil and danger of sin. Secondly, we need to cultivate a growing fear of God in our souls. Thirdly, we must engage in regular, honest self-examination. Fourthly, we must take every necessary step to avoid every occasion or opportunity that presents itself for us to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Fifthly, we must diligently guard our hearts, steal it, guard it, Uh, Put a hedge around it uh, to keep sin out, as it were, and to keep our hearts for God. Sixthly, we must fill our minds and hearts with gospel motives uh, in order to pursue holiness, especially those motives that flow to us from the love of God and the cross of Christ. We must be determined to put to death those sins in us that killed our Savior. 
But now this morning, I'd like for us to focus on yet another discipline that I believe is necessary if we're going to make progress in this work of putting to death the deeds of the body. And I do anticipate that this will be the final one for this study. There are actually more things we could say, but uh, I think it may be wise to move on. The next verse, actually, if you notice in your Bible, the next, <clears throat> I'm sorry if I can find it. Where's my Bible? There it is. Uh, the next verse is very crucial, and you'll know more about that later, but uh, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And that's what we hope to take up next Lord's Day. Very, very crucial statement in the Bible. One that is right up there in the top five of those that are grossly misunderstood in modern Christian circles. So uh, hopefully we'll try to deal with that next time. But anyway, this morning now, we're looking at number seven, the seven pastoral counsel of how we can uh, how we can deal with our remaining sin and put it to death. Number seven, we must strive to have and maintain a good conscience before God and man at all times. Now, the importance of our conscience in the work of our sanctification and mortification simply cannot be overstated, brethren. Conscience is God's deputy in our soul. Its function uh, is twofold. It is either going to condemn our actions or it's going to commend our actions based upon God's standard of righteousness. It's part of man's moral constitution all the way back in creation God gave Adam and Eve a conscience now it wasn't alive and alert to, to evil and sin until they fell you remember the knowledge of good and evil but once they sin now they have the knowledge of good and evil based upon conscience and we see this point made very clear in Romans chapter 2 you'll turn with me there Romans chapter 2 where Paul is opening up the guilt of all men before the law of God, that Jews were guilty of breaking God's law, a law given to them by direct revelation, uh, written on the tablets of stone and so forth. And then the Gentile, the pagan, who even though they had never had the advantage of having the written word of God or the Ten Commandments delivered to them on the tablets of stone like the Jews had, Nevertheless, Paul makes the point they were likewise guilty of transgressing the law of God, the law of nature, uh, the law that was written upon their hearts at creation itself. Now notice what Paul says in Romans 2 verse 13. He says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, that is the written law, are a law to themselves who show or reveal the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Now, there's a lot there. Let me give you a few principles, some things here about conscience and its function in our lives as the creatures of God. Very important. These are very important principles. Number one, conscience is a universal part of man's moral constitution. Man comes into this world with a conscience, and as we'll see, since the fall, it's been defiled, it's been weakened, but every man, woman, boy, and girl created by God has a conscience. Number two, the function of conscience in fallen man is to act like a judge in our hearts and minds. It's designed by God to accuse us, this is after the fall now, to accuse us, to convict us, to make us feel a sense of shame uh, when we violate God's standards or to commend us and to excuse us when we obey and when we fulfill God's standard. Notice here in verse 15, conscience says either accuses or excuses a person. 
It either brings conviction and condemns us, or it commends us. Conscience represents God in our hearts and minds. It represents God as a judge to our soul. It's like a referee. Those of you that like basketball, I'm not wild about basketball, but some of you perhaps are. You know a referee in a basketball game. Here's somebody with the basketball, and they're walking or running down, uh, running the ball down the court, and they're not dribbling. Well, if the referee is doing his job, he's going to blow his whistle. He's going to call a foul, uh, the foul of traveling. Uh, there's going to be a penalty. Traveling is a breaking of the rules of the game of basketball. Well, conscience, if it's operating and functioning properly, is something like that referee where we transgress God's law, uh, we transgress God's rules, He blows the whistle and He troubles our soul and He brings a sense of shame and guilt upon us. And, uh, but on the other hand, when we obey God... When we repent of our sins and God forgives us for Christ's sake, then conscience smiles and our conscience commends us at that point. But then thirdly, conscience has an objective standard. And that standard is the law of God. Paul says that the Gentiles who do by nature the things that are contained in the law show the work of the law written in their hearts. And we see this, if you're familiar with uh, third world countries, pagan countries that really have no or little gospel, uh, there's still a sense of, quote, right and wrong in some of them. And that's what we're talking about, the work of the law still written in their hearts. But the standard by which conscience is designed to function is the law of God, because it's that law that tells us what's right and what's wrong. It reveals to us what pleases God and what displeases the Lord. Now, as we're going to see, conscience has to be renewed, it has to be strengthened, it has to be tried, has to be brought in line with God's law, uh, the moral standards of God's revealed will. That's the standard of conscience. And that's the standard that conscience should use, ought to use, must use, is the law of God. But then fourthly, conscience is used by God to influence people, even lost people in the world, to constrain their evil designs and to prompt them to do good things that make the world a more bearable place to live. God constrains the wickedness of man, oftentimes through their conscience. Now he uses other things. He uses the laws of men, uses the magistrate, he uses parents, he uses all kinds of things, but he often uses conscience. Can you imagine a world where no one had a conscience? Where there was no moral restraint whatsoever in anyone's soul? What a horrible, terrifying place that would be to live. Hell will be such a place. No conscience in hell. Everybody for themselves, including the devil. You can only imagine what that will be like. Conscience will rise up then on the fourth or the fifth thing. Conscience is going to rise up to condemn us on the last day if we're not saved. And that's the point, the bottom line point of Romans 1 and 2. Even though some may not have the written word or law of God. There are people out there in the darkest of Africa, as we say, in distant places that have never really heard the gospel. But, but even though they've not had the written word of God or the law of God, all are still guilty before God. Why? Because God has revealed Himself to them in what we call natural revelation, in creation and in their consciences, and they sinfully suppress that truth in unrighteousness, Paul tells us. And therefore, on the last day, they will be held accountable to God. They will be guilty before God. And their consciences, which they suppressed and violated and ignored, or tried to appease with, with religious activities, they did this all of their lives. They're going, that conscience is going to rise up and testify against them on the last day. It is said that a guilty conscience is a preview 
of the day of judgment in the soul. A guilty conscience is a preview of the day of judgment in our soul. And God sometimes, oftentimes, uses a man's conscience to convict him of his sin and his need of Christ. Uh, where, where God awakens a person's conscience to feel the depths of his sin and to move him to repentance. Preaching, it is said, preaching has an ally in man when he's preaching. Even to lost men and women, they, uh, uh, God, God has an ally in the, in the conscience. Preachers have an ally in men's consciences because they know instinctively when the Word of God comes, even though they suppress it, that this is true, this is right, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. That takes more than a guilty conscience to bring about true conversion to Christ. It takes regeneration, doesn't it? It takes the work of God's grace, the Holy Spirit of God, to draw a person to faith and, and for him to repent of his sins and to embrace Christ as he's, as he's offered in the Gospel. And so not everybody that has a guilty conscience and feels ashamed of his or her sins ever gets converted. But some are. And I might add, it's, it's a dangerous thing, it's a, an extremely dangerous thing for a lost person to suppress the convictions of conscience, to, to put them off, to ignore them. That's what Felix, you remember the, there's a man named Felix in the, in the book of Acts where Paul was preaching to him about righteousness and self-control and the judgment that is to come. And it says that Felix trembled. Felix's conscience was terrified at the prospect of the judgment to come. He was a wicked man. But instead of repenting and believing the gospel, he told Paul... Go away for now, and when I have a more convenient season, I will call for you. Well, as far as we know, of course, uh, that convenient time never happened, and Felix died a lost, condemned man. He put aside the convictions of his conscience, and ultimately went to hell. And so I would appeal to you, don't ignore the, the convictions of your conscience. Conscience. Don't suppress the convictions of your conscience. That's God through the Word speaking to your soul, calling you to repentance. A sense of guilt and shame and fear in our soul is like physical pain in our bodies. It's designed to alert us to a problem and send us to the doctor for, for help. And, and we ignore this pain to our own peril. And so spiritual pain and conviction in our heart is God's warning in our soul that God has a controversy with me and, and that I'm guilty of some transgression. It's designed to cause us to run to the great physician of souls, to the Lord Jesus Christ for spiritual healing and forgiveness. To have our consciences cleansed from our dead works that we might now begin to serve the living God with a true conscience. So don't ignore convictions of your conscience, folks. Don't do it. It's a dangerous thing. But then I want us to consider the work of conscience in the life of a believer, of a Christian. Our consciences, once they're re renewed, re restored, and cleansed in the blood of Christ, becomes a wonderful ally in the work of our sanctification as well as in the mortification of our sin, which is simply part of the negative side of our sanctification. In fact, one of the goals of the Christian should and must be to live with a good conscience, a pure conscience, where my conscience, properly trained and functioning the way it should, does not accuse me of sin. That was the way Paul sought to live as a Christian man. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. I'm going to look at a number of verses now to see how conscience works in the lives of believers. 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says this, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in, simpl in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, 
but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Now, Paul could say here to the Corinthians, in the face of all of the false accusations that were being made against him, and that's the backdrop of that statement and some more later on in the epistle, in the face of all those accusations that had been made against me, he says, I have a good conscience. His conscience testified to him that he, in spite of what they were saying, that he had lived with sincerity of heart and in godliness. Uh, it, it's a wonderful thing, brethren, when you're able to, to face false accusations against you to be able to have a good and clear conscience before God. Very important that that's the case. Then turn with me back to Acts 24. Acts 24. Now here is Paul before Felix, the Roman governor, again uh, responding to the false accusations, this time of the Jews. Uh, and notice what Paul says in Acts 24, 15 and 16. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. That is, these uh, Jews that are accusing him of not being true to the faith. They also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, just appreciate several things that Paul says here about maintaining his good conscience. Number one, his goal as a Christian man was to have a conscience which was without offense. That is, to have and maintain a conscience that did not accuse him of sin, that he could look himself square in the spiritual mirror and know that he had not offended God or his fellow man, specifically in the area that he's speaking of here. That in gospel sincerity of soul, he knew of no sin that he had committed, that he had not dealt with with true repentance, and clinging to Christ that he had been forgiven of. He knew of nothing of an offense before God or men in this situation. What they were accusing him of was false. Now just let me interject this here. You might read that and say, well, does that mean Paul never sinned? We know that's not true. Paul was not a sinless man. Uh, he was not utterly sinless. No, Romans chapter 7, just as an, as an example, makes it very clear that he wrestled with remaining sin just like you and I do. Alright, but, but he was able by the grace of God and in repentance and believing in Christ and the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit, he was able to maintain a good conscience void of offense between God and man. And that's his point here. And so his goal was to have a conscience that did not accuse him. Number two, he wanted to have a good conscience both in regards to God and man. Not just man, and not just towards God only, but he wanted to be blameless and without offense be, uh, before both God and man. Both his Creator and those that he was ministering to. And then this was a, a constant concern for Paul. Notice what it says. He says, I strive to have a conscience void of offense always, always, at all times, in every situation, when I'm in public, when I'm all alone and nobody sees me except God, every day, all day, always, I want to have a clear conscience, one that doesn't accuse me or condemn me, one that approves of what I'm doing and thinking and so forth. Always having a good conscience, not just on the Lord's day, but every day. And then notice he put forth effort to do this. He says, I myself always strive to have a conscience void of offense. And the word here, strive, means to exercise. It's to labor intensely. It's to work at something. It's to exert tremendous effort in order to obtain a goal. Like an athlete that exercises his body in the gym or, or out on the track in order to run and win a race. That's the word that's used here. 
And, and Paul says, I exerted much effort in order to maintain a good conscience. It didn't just happen. Paul's not on autopilot here. It doesn't come easy. Maintaining a good, pure conscience is hard spiritual work. And we've got to exercise ourselves towards godliness, brothers and sisters. And then appreciate Paul's motive. Why do he care about maintaining a conscience void of offense? Why? Well, he begins this passage, he says, This being so. What's he referring to? Well, look at verse 15. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, the Jews that is are accusing him, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. He, he says this being so, the fact that there's a resurrection coming, both of the just as well as the unjust, the fact that Paul had this hope in God that he would be included in the resurrection of the just, that he was going to be raised to stand before the throne of God. So the reality of eternity, of a future resurrection, of heaven, of hell, the hope of eternal life and the judgment to come, it was, it, it, it was in the light of, of those realities, you see, of the coming day of resurrection, knowing that he was going to stand before God and give an account before God, that Paul then exercised himself to have a conscience that was without offense before the eye of his God, as well as before his fellow man. The reality of judgment day and resurrection and eternity ought to have a powerful influence on how we live, brethren. So let's consider for a few moments what then must we do to maintain a good conscience before God and men? How do we do this? Well, a number of things. First of all, we must biblically inform and instruct and mold our consciences so that it will be bound only by the word and law of God. Conscience must be informed and instructed by God's law. You see, before conversion, our consciences were uh, all mixed up, all confused, they were dull, they weren't functioning properly. Uh, sometimes they even get seared where conscience doesn't hardly work at all. But when we're saved, what does God do? Well, He restores our conscience. He enlivens it. He cleanses it. He writes His law upon our minds and hearts. He gives us then a desire to obey and the power and ability to obey and fulfill the commandments of God to do so evangelically. We'll never do it perfectly, but evangelically we want to be pleasing to God and He does so by giving us His Spirit. He gives us a sensitive conscience. He gives us a desire to know God, to repent, to obey, and so forth. That happens when our consciences are renewed by the grace of God. But even so, we must still bring the Word and will of God to bear upon our consciences if it's to function properly. This is so important. You've heard the saying perhaps, well, just let your conscience be your guide. Well, now if it's properly trained and under the Word of God, okay, fine. But that's a dangerous position to have where we just go by the flow, whatever we feel like today. Uh, especially non-Christians can really get in trouble. Let your conscience be your guide. That's not what we're advocating here. Alright? But Romans 12.1, for example, we're called upon to not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that is, you may try what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, brothers and sisters, it's our business as believers to have our minds renewed and transformed and ultimately governed by the revealed will of our God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5 that the purpose or goal of the commandment is love from a pure or sincere heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. 
So, one of the very purposes that God has given us His commandments is so that we might live before Him in sincerity and in love and with a good conscience before Him. So, I'm responsible to mold, to train, to inform my conscience as to what pleases God and what displeases Him. That means... We're going to scour our Bibles to know His will. By the way, that's where we find the will of God. We're not going to know the secret decreed will of God till it happens. You understand that? God has given us His Word. That's where the revealed will of God is. That's what we're to be scouring. We're to be studying the revealed will of God to know what His will for me is. We meditate on His statutes day and night. We diligently search the Scriptures to discover His commands for me. And then we sit under the faithful preaching of the Word of God that instructs us week by week in the will of God. And we earnestly plead, along with David, Teach me, O Lord, the way of Your statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep Your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with all of my heart. And then we need to do like David did in Psalm 119.11. He says, Your word I've hidden in my heart. I've hidden it in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, God's word hidden away in our hearts helps us to make informed decisions as to what displeases God, avoids sin, and what pleases God. And so we need to train and mold and inform our consciences with the revealed will of God, what God commands us to do, what God forbids us to do. And of course, that's a process. And it's vital that we do this so that our consciences are bound to God's word and law and only to God's word and law. And I would submit to you that there are several dangers to an ill-informed, untrained conscience. There's the danger of becoming overly scrupulous and legalistic and having false guilt if we fail to biblically inform our consciences. And so the referee, as it were, will blow his whistle and call a foul when in reality there is no foul. Yet so irritated in baseball where the umpire calls a strike and it's clearly not a strike, it's a ball. Now maybe his problem isn't in doesn't know the rules, he knows them, he's just not applying them right. But anyway, but you get my point. Some believers in the church in Corinth, who because of an improperly informed conscience, believed it was sin to eat something that had been offered to an idol. And Paul had to say, no, an, an idol is nothing. Uh, not everybody has that knowledge, but an idol in and of itself is nothing, no big deal. It wasn't the law of God that you do that. But they didn't understand their freedom in Christ. They could eat anything they wanted to do. But you see what happened is they went ahead in spite of that, even though they had a bad conscience about it, they went ahead and ate, and in spite of their consciences telling them it was wrong, even though it wasn't wrong, their consciences were defiled and they suffered guilt when in reality there was no sin in their eating. See, their consciences were muddled up. The same problem, you, you had this in Rome as well, misinformed consciences that led to, <clears throat> led to uh, scrupulous activity that was unbiblical and false guilt and they became very critical and divisive. They had a legalistic spirit towards anybody, anybody that didn't agree with them. You had those that would eat meat, those that wouldn't eat meat, those that would drink wine, those that wouldn't drink wine, those who kept feast. The uh, Jewish days and, and, the, and the brethren that didn't, the strong and the weak, and all that was going on. They had to have their consciences informed of the Word of God or it was going to explode the whole church. Some dear Christians have their consciences bound to a thousand things that are, that are non-issues before God. I hate to say this, but some in our fundamentalist churches, they have a lot of man-made rules. And boy, if you don't keep those man-made rules, you're in big trouble. You'll get excommunicated for things that God doesn't even care about. True. 
What about the Roman Catholic Church? You can't do this, you can't do that, you must do this, you must do that. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. It's terrible. Have to have our consciences bound, what? To the Word of God alone. We need to inform our consciences, train our consciences according to the will of God, the law of God, not social customs, not the will of others, not the scruples of a legalistic church, but the law of God should govern our consciences and our conduct. Christ Himself must rule our consciences with His Word. Christ is the Lord of our conscience and He does that through His Word. So, first of all this morning, we must inform and instruct our conscience according to the will and Word of God, what God actually requires of us, and what He forbids and what He commands and so forth. Secondly then, we must do nothing to defile or stifle or suppress our consciences once it's biblically informed. Once we're convinced this is the will of God, once we're persuaded in our minds this is right, this is God's law, or this is forbidden, this is sinful, then we must let absolutely nothing hinder us from obeying the dictates of a biblically informed conscience. Nothing. Our consciences are to be bound by the will of God and God's commandments. Don't cut corners with your conscience. Don't violate your conscience. I think of David, for example, when he's being hunted down by King Saul, you remember. And on two separate occasions, uh, David could have killed Saul and he, he, he would have saved himself a whole lot of trouble. He would have ascended the throne earlier, at least perhaps he would have. And you remember once David was able to get so close to, as to cut off a piece of Saul's robe while he was sleeping. And uh, he could have easily done that, could have easily killed him. In fact, his men were even urging him to put a sword through his heart and kill him. Remember what David's response was? He said, God forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. His conscience was even smitten for cutting off the piece of cloth off of his garment. David's conscience was bound by the Word of God, by the law of God that said, do the Lord's anointed no harm. David had this sensitive conscience, an informed conscience, and he refused to defile or trample down his conscience just so he could ascend the throne a little quicker and get rid of his enemy. Who, by the way, was wanting to kill him. I think of John Bunyan, uh, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and how he was thrown in the Bedford jail for preaching the gospel without a license from the state, uh, the state church of England. And there were horrible conditions in that jail. And he had a young blind daughter and a family that needed him and a church that needed their pastor. And yet he refused to violate his conscience and sell out his calling to the unbiblical principles of an apostate church. Brethren, we need more men like David and John Bunyan today. And we need to have... Uh, tender, sensitive consciences that are bound by the Word of God that, where we will not dare violate our conscience. That, would be, that we would be willing rather to shed blood than to defile our consciences before the Lord. And so whatever you do, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, don't trample your conscience. Even if you're in doubt about an activity, it's better to err on the side of caution than to indulge or to engage in something that your conscience is not fully persuaded is right in the eyes of God. And again, that was Paul's counsel to the weak brethren in Romans 14. He didn't want them to just continue on in their weak thinking... No, no. Uh, remember, some of them were unsure if it was okay to eat meat or drink wine. Their consciences were not fully persuaded it was pleasing to God for them to do so. And Paul's counsel for them is this in Romans 14, 23. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. Kind of a complicated statement. But here's what his point is. Until your conscience is clear 
and fully persuaded and informed that eating meat is fine before God, you have freedom to do so, until you can eat with confidence in your freedom, your liberty in Christ, for you, at this junction, for you to eat that meat or drink that wine is sin. For you to override your conscience, even in matters, these were matters of pure indifference, but to engage in an activity that your conscience does not fully approve of is still sin. Now let that sink in. God requires that everything we do, we do with a good conscience. And so before we engage in anything, we ought to ask ourselves, does my conscience approve of this? Is my conscience fully persuaded that this course of action, this activity is approved by God? Does it conform to His Word? And if my conscience sends up a red flag and, and, and we can't engage in that activity with a good conscience before God, you had better leave it alone rather than to violate your conscience. Now, having said that, you may need to retrain your conscience, right? Maybe wrong. It may be like those Romans and Corinthians. Maybe that you have a conscience that's not molded by God's Word. True, but never suppress or defile your conscience. Never silent it, except with the Word of God. Because if we do that, we run the risk, beloved, of hardening our hearts, of searing our consciences with a hot iron, making our consciences dull and insensitive and ineffective. And that's the highway that can lead us into apostasy. Paul said so in, uh, to Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy 1.19, he said, Having faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected or cast aside concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Casting aside a good conscience, brethren, can, can lead to spiritual, the spiritual shipwreck of our souls. We can crash our souls on the rocks of, of severe trouble, severe backsliding, or even apostasy. And that's not just theoretical rhetoric either. I've known men, men that professed Christ, sang the songs of Zion, who preached from Reformed Baptist pulpits that cast aside a good conscience and, and repeatedly defiled and stifled their consciences until they wrecked their souls in wickedness. This is not theory. This is reality. It can ruin a man's ministry. It can ruin a church, the family, bring great dishonor to the name of Christ when we defile our consciences, particularly in an open way. Serious matter. But then it can begin very subtly, you see. Pushing us out of our conscience, something relatively small. Uh, I, th I don't think we really understand how this works. We defile our conscience with a bending of the truth. Maybe we're convinced we should watch, not because our conscience says it's good. No, our conscience is telling, no, maybe you better not. Watching that PG-13 movie, thumbing through that glossy magazine that just happens to be sitting at the stand in the barber shop or whatever, cheating Uncle Sam out of a few bucks here and there, say, well, he'll never figure it out. Cutting out our prayer times a couple times a week for frivolous reasons. Missing the Lord's Day services now and again. But after a while, you know what happens? After trampling our consciences over and over again, our consciences get duller, they get duller, they get quieter, they get quieter, and it gets easier and easier to sin, easier and easier to silence our consciences until we find ourselves on the rocks of apostasy or in serious spiritual trouble with a seared conscience. That's the danger. That's the danger. Brethren, whatever we do, don't cast aside a good conscience. It's one of the most valuable possessions a Christian has.
And then thirdly, teach your conscience to look quickly and only to Christ for cleansing and appeasement and peace. That when we sin and we fail and conscience alarms us, what should we do? Well, we don't ignore conscience. We don't try to appease conscience by covering or extenuating our guilt. He who covers his sin will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. And so we should run quickly to the fountain uh, uh, open for sin and uncleanness and the blood of Christ at the first stirrings of an offended conference. Look to Christ to cleanse you and forgive you and restore your guilty conscience. Don't look to appease your conscience by doing things to make up for your guilt. This, this is Protestant penance. We do things, we get busy, and we do extra things to appease our guilty conscience. But never think I can get rid of my own guilty conscience just by doing more religious stuff or by my tears or by counting beads or praying longer or whatever the case might be. Only Christ's blood and His intercession can purge our consciences from evil works and restore to us a good conscience before God. Keep short accounts with God, beloved, and keep close to the cross. And then finally, we need to appreciate how the benefits... Or, or appreciate the benefits of maintaining a good conscience. And there's numbers of them. I'm just going to mention them in closing here. First of all, if we have a good conscience, we'll have unimpeded access to God in prayer. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near to God with a true heart, that means a sincere heart, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Or 1 John 3.20, passage that was mentioned here last Sunday night. Uh, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive because we keep His commandments. Without a cleansed conscience, with an evil conscience, we will instinctively dread coming into God's presence. And the Lord will not hear our prayers if we are regarding iniquity in our hearts, the the heavens will be like brass to us. Say, I have a really hard time praying. Well, maybe this is the problem. Now, maybe it isn't, but maybe this is the problem. The heavens are as brass to me when I go to pray. Well, have you searched your conscience? When my conscience is clear and washed in the blood of Christ, we have an unimpeded access to God's throne, God's ear. He'll hear our prayers. His ears are open to the righteous. But then maintaining a good conscience will keep us from much hypocrisy. And boy, this is crucial. In order to maintain a good conscience, you see, I'll be forced to be honest with God and with myself. I won't be able to play games with God. I'll have to be sincere. God despises hypocrisy. And the maintenance of a good conscience is going to go a long way in helping us not to indulge in hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a wicked thing. Oh, I fear that hypocrisy is one of the crowning sins of the church of the 21st century. It really is. Putting on a mask. Oh, I'm so religious. But I'm really not. That's a terrible thing. And see, if we have a good conscience, we can't do that. But then thirdly, maintaining a good conscience will aid us administering assurance and peace to our souls now and enable us to die in peace and without regret. 1 John 3.20 If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. We have assurance. We have peace with God. Brethren, the, the deathbed is no place to begin to find a good conscience void of offense. That just rarely, rarely works. You want to die in peace? You don't want to face death with a thousand regrets or with the terror of dying and being ushered into God's presence. Then you need to get a good conscience and maintain a good, pure, sincere, non-offended, non-accusing conscience that's washed in the blood of Jesus. And Then you'll be able to say with Simeon of old, let your servant depart in peace. Never will a good conscience before God and man be so vital as when we draw near to the day of our dying. And little else will matter on that day. 
And I've, been, I've lived long enough and been in the ministry long enough to be at people's bedsides in their death throes, both Christians and non-Christians. And I can guarantee you right now, nothing else will matter when you're on your deathbed about how much money you've got in the bank, know all the people that you have as friends, all the prestige that you've been able to accumulate, and all these other things. You won't be thinking of that. You know what you'll be thinking about? My conscience is about to kill me! Because I don't have a Savior, I don't have a mediator, and I'm about to go into the presence of God laden with all of my sin. And we have enough conscience, unless our conscience is just so seared, we understand that that's not a good thing. To appear before God in our sin is a horrible thing to even contemplate. It's a fearful thing to fall to the hands of the living God. And so plead with God to give you a tender conscience. Train your conscience. Bring it under the government of God's Word and the Lordship of Christ. Keep short accounts with God and and keep it cleansed in the blood of the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, ultimately, a good conscience is found in our resting wholly and totally upon the blood and righteousness of Christ our Savior. As we sing uh, far too seldom, as we sometimes sing, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, how important this is, how critical it is for us to maintain a clear, good conscience, void of offense before God and men. Lord, help us to search our own consciences. Lord, help us to live not not just according to our conscience, but a conscience that is trained and molded by the Word of God. And, oh God, if there are things that we're doing to violate our conscience, Lord, help us to to not do them anymore. Help us to plead for mercy, knowing that our Savior is willing to forgive us. Help us, oh God, help us to maintain a good, sound, sincere conscience, we pray. For those that are lost, who perhaps their conscience is dealing with them even now, we pray that that conviction would lead them on to faith, and to repentance in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. from God's holy word, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Let me encourage you to please be back this evening. It's crucial that we be here. We have an important announcement to make as well as prayer to offer um, as well as a sermon to hear. So you need to be here for all those three reasons. Amen.